Yo, Kyle, this is Max Nelson of Cuba out here in Utila, Honduras, doing a free diving course. Got re-inspired to get aquatic after listening to your interview with Wallace J. Nichols and Blue Mind, and stoked to be out here. Love the show. Keep killing it, man. Maxwell coming in all the way from Honduras. Thanks for sending that in. Uh, I have gone back and listened to episode 108 with Wallace J. Nichols three or four times, and I tend to go back when I'm in hot L.A. traffic or something uh, comparable. Whenever I'm stressed out, I like to put on the sweet, serenading voice of the author of Blue Mind, and I always feel a a little bit more relaxed. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to hear you're taking a course. I always recommend that people can, uh, that people take free diving courses if they're interested in, in taking their spearfishing to the next level or getting into big wave surfing in a responsible way. Uh, the group that I can recommend is called performance free diving international. I've taken two courses from them. Uh, they're, they're three day courses and they got me from a two and a half minute breath hold to a five and a half minute breath hold within three days. And on the third day, um, we went out to, I took my course in Santa Cruz. And uh, on the third day, we took boats out to the mile buoy, which is, uh, you know, <laughs> well named a mile out to sea. And we dove 60 feet down. Uh, and that's something I never could have been able to do. And and pretty much everyone in the course was able to pull it off. Um, the instructors are are just really responsible and um, take you through the psychology of holding your breath and and really instill the confidence in you to be able to go a little bit further. And um, those kinds of experiences are really empowering. I was hanging with uh, my buddy Brendan Rue the other day, and and Joe, they're the founders of Santa Cruz Medicinals, um, the CBD company that sponsors this podcast, and I took them through a little um, pool workout, uh, and it was it was rad just to be able to um, t- transfer a few of those skills that I learned, um, just a few of those little techniques about you know breathing up. Uh, relaxing your body i mean that there's so it's such a spiritual practice to be underwater and fully relax your body um and brendan went from being able to swim one lap underwater to two laps underwater in just one session um and the feeling when you're diving down you know down you know 60 feet or something like that is uh one of the things that's so cool is that when you when you start to become negatively buoyant, you start to free fall down to the ocean floor, and to stay calm in that moment and then come up from it is it's just an ex- one of those experiences that can't be taken away from you. So uh, that's my that's my little rant, and uh, you know, I'll, well, I'll, I'll talk about my second sponsor um, through this vein which is mud water. Um, they're a chai mushroom blend and, um, they've, uh, many times I will replace my morning cup of coffee with mud water. And what I notice is that, um, my heart rate stays lower when I drink mud water. Um, I like coffee. I think it helps me think more clearly, 
but a lot of times it comes with these jittery effects and my hands start sweating and my ass starts sweating you guys ever get ass coffee sweats it's it's a real thing and it's it doesn't feel good um there are side effects whereas with mud water there you know it has um it has lion's mane and turmeric and reishi and all of these these uh mushrooms that have these great benefits um and i get the satisfying feeling of having a, a a good warm beverage in the morning but I could I could drink mud water and then go diving, um, whereas I can't. If you try and drink a cup of coffee and then go uh, spearfishing, good luck. You're going to be able to hold your breath for <laughs> probably ten seconds. Uh, this episode of the podcast is with Steve Hawk. Steve Hawk is the former editor of Surfer Magazine. He was the editor from 1990 to 1998 and was a contributing editor since 2004. Um, Steve moved on to become the editorial director of Surfline and Swell.com from 1999 to 2001. He then helped start the Tony Hawk Foundation, a charitable group co-founded by Steve's younger brother, Tony. I've heard of Tony. Uh, He helped write the surf-themed HBO show, John from Cincinnati, and since 2009 has been the executive director, executive editor, excuse me, of Sierra, the Sierra Club's bi-monthly magazine. Uh, He's just a fantastic writer and fantastic thinker. Um, I've had Steve on this podcast before, um, and I will link to that past episode. In the, in the last one, we talked a lot about writing. And in this episode, we talked more specifically about an article that, that Steve wrote for the Surfer's Journal about uh, the Duke, one of the most famous surfers of all time, one of the most misunderstood surfers of all time. Um, so S- Steve uh, laid that story out, and then we... Uh, flailed our way into some mindless pontification as we do on this podcast steve is very articulate but i i mindlessly pontificate quite a bit but uh i just really enjoy the guy's company um before we get into it i want to let you know that um this month's box of goodies with uh the santa cruz medicinals cbd coconut oil uh the mud water and sex at dawn uh the book by dr chris ryan um which i'm selling all these these uh products on my site kyle.surf this is going to be the last one for a little while. Um, I might start it up at a later date, but I'm realizing that I just don't have the bandwidth to do the box of goodies and travel as much as I do. And I, I so appreciate all of you who are supporting the show um, by buying these products on my website, kyle.surf, at a discounted price. Um, it's been hugely helpful, and it's been a, a cool way to connect with all of you who listen to this podcast in a new way. Um, but I, it's just becoming a little too much for me and I hate having, I hate, I'm like the guy who hates owing people money and I also hate owing you product and, and I just don't have the bandwidth to mail all this stuff out more than once a month. Um, 
and it sucks getting emails from people being like, hey, dude, I ordered my, my box a few weeks ago, uh, and I, I want it, which is totally understandable. Um, so the Sex at Dawn box is going out this week, and that will be the last one for a little while. I think I have maybe two... There's a couple orders that are... It hasn't been fully sold out, but it's close. But you can go to my website, kyle.surf, to get Zipbox. Um, they're all great products, and Sex at Dawn is a wonderful, life-changing book. Uh, and it's written by one of the most honest men I know. Um, so with that, please welcome to the show, my friend and a very talented writer, Mr. Steve Hawk. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Steve Hawk in the house, round two. Round two. Quick session out front, three waves, three to the beach. Three to the beach, exactly. In and out. I I wouldn't say I milked them all the way to the beach. Yeah? No. Did you get some fun ones, though? I got one that kind of ran. Nice. Um, Well, I appreciate you making the trip down, and uh, we got a lot to dig into. What have you been up to recently? Um, What's consuming your life, man? Well, I'm still, I'm working at Stanford at the business school there, editing the magazine and uh, doing a lot of stories on professor research. And um, some of it's pretty boring, frankly, but some of, it's, some of it can be really interesting. And is this a, a magazine that students can read around campus? It's actually an alumni magazine. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, but it's, it's not like most alumni magazines in that it's not about goings on around campus. It's more about taking the professors and, and um, all the dense research they do and some of the visitors who come on campus to talk and turning their uh, turning that into sort of business lessons for people. Right. So you're a little bit of a translator in that yeah, aspect. I, where, yeah. I, I often say that my business card should read, uh, Steve Hawk, senior editor, I dumb shit down. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's important. I think that some of the most... I'm very good at dumbing shit down, so... Well, you know what they say, you have to understand something complete, completely to explain it simply. Yeah, I don't know about completely, but you have to understand it a little bit. Yeah, yeah enough to still have your, your foot in the door of, of the masses yeah. and yeah. understand attention span and understand what, how you're going to pull people in. Um, I just finished your article that you wrote for Surface Journal on Duke, which I thought was um, very illuminating and honest it definitely didn't um paint the pretty old picture that is normally you know normally painted of uh of duke yeah um i thought so too um there haven't there have been a couple of books about his life that have gone into a lot of the stuff i went into in that article but um you know that came out of a project where 10 years ago i i was started research to try to do either a movie on duke or a a mini series on Duke, um, and uh, the more I looked into it, the harder it, it was to find the center and and to actually build a story around him. Because I came to realize that, as much as he was this incredible athlete who blazed some trails, 
he he didn't have a lot of uh, agency. Like he was kind of passive. Hmm. And um, like the story was told for him. This, yeah. The story of him was told by other people. Right. Their right. version of him, something right. that fit into a nice, pretty little picture. Yeah, and all of his agency and all of his um, his mojo was was athletic, um, you know. And he was he grew up. Um, he was three years old when Queen Lilio Kalani was deposed, so he was in the middle of all that. He watched the transformation of Hawaii from a. And for people who don't know what happened, can you yeah. give a quick backstory sure. on Queen Lilio Kalani? Um, so Hawaii was a nation state, a sovereign nation, but of course it was uh, colonized by white missionaries. Um, and back in the late 1800s, a group of the biggest landowners, all white, all men, um, called themselves the Committee of Safety, uh, decided to stage a coup and overthrow her government at a time when the military was coming in, the American military was building a base there. And, uh, they, they basically made a, uh, they bluffed and said, we're going to, um, start infiltrating with American military and, and take, uh, action against you. Is that correct? Yeah. So there was a, there was a giant naval ship there and they told the queen that the, the naval commander had given orders for his men to, to basically gun down her troops if she, opposed this this coup so they actually they escorted her out of the palace um and uh turns out they the commander didn't have authority from the president and eventually that was all going to be turned around but there was a um presidential election and the new president was on the side of the, the colonists and um and so then it became an american territory um but i've always imagined that uh and it's a travesty i mean it's 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 really it, the the sovereignty movement in hawaii is quixotic and almost certainly never going to become a sovereign nation again. I know some people are, wouldn't, don't want to hear me say that, but um, what's quixotic mean? Meaning uh, they're they're tilting at windmills. They're 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 on a crusade that, that's right. never going to go anywhere. Um, and but but it's righteous and it's just, and they got fucked. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, but I, I always imagined. So Duke was kind of vaguely related to the queen, to her court anyway. And uh, I always imagine his father, Duke Sr., standing uh, outside the palace when the queen came out. Because there are pictures of a lot of native Hawaiians who were kind of lining the street when she got escorted out of the palace. Um, a lot of them weeping because they kind of knew what was going on. I don't know if any of them realized that it was actually that was going to be the fall of, of the monarchy and that actually that they were going to become an American territory and it was, they were kind of all done for. <laughs> but um, uh, I always imagined, whenever I thought of it as a movie or, or a TV show, I imagined him opening actually with the father holding the kid and the kid wondering why his mother was crying. Right. Um, so, you know, he, he grew up with that. And I should also go back and say that, you know, the Hawaiians... When, when the first white missionaries landed 100 years before that, there were, they think, around 800,000 Hawaiians, maybe, on the Ala Island chain. And by the time the queen got ousted, um, all the diseases that the, that the Europeans had introduced decimated that population down to about 40,000. So there were like f 5 to 10% of them left. 
um, which is just crazy, crazy to think about. Yeah, I mean, they had the, their own monetary system. They had yeah. the Ahupua system. It was very complex yeah. and evolved um, society. Um, so then Duke grew up, and he is, you know, he's known now as the ambassador of Aloha. Um, right, father of modern surfing. Right. Um, and, and rightfully so. Uh, but he was a, um, he was a waterman of all kinds. He was a great paddler. He was a great surfer. But more than anything, he was a great swimmer. And this was at a time when swimming was actually a really popular sport internationally. It was a big sport in the Olympics. And um, and a guy saw him working out. He was when he was um, eighteen, nineteen. A guy saw him working out and talked to him and said, "You should come compete." Because um, the AAU had a chapter there in Hawaii, so he started learning how to swim competitively. And in his first um, AAU meet, he broke the world record for the fifty-yard dash by like four seconds or something. Like just it was ridiculous. Because he had a whole you know different way of, of swimming. He used his legs, which people didn't do. He he did a flutter kick when people were doing kind of a weird scissor kick. When they were swimming freestyle, they were doing a sw- uh, scissor kick. Yeah, like a, like a sideways kick. Wow, that's really um, interesting. And people who who watched him said it looked it looked like he was he was a, a powerboat, like he was a motorboat. Okay. A couple of people said, "Is that legal?" <laughs> that's um, really interesting. So he he truly was just so far ahead of the pack that when the the AAU and, and they had they had the the field measured, they had a bunch of guys with stopwatches. When the AAU sent the results of of that first world record to AAU headquarters in the United States, they, they telegraphed back, um, what are you using for stopwatches, alarm clocks? Like they, they, they refused to believe it. So they refused to sanction it, that his world record. So at the age of 18, I think it was, um, he, this was 1912, he was born, 22, he was 22. He was born in 1890. This was 1912. He, um, went to America and went on a, um, basically a swim tour competing across um, I think he started in Pittsburgh and he was in Chicago and he was in New York and he got a lot of newspaper coverage um, and uh, ended up again breaking world records making the Olympic team and and the timing was such that he didn't even come home he just went straight from the East Coast to Stockholm for the 1912 Olympics where he won gold medal um, and he was in the 1912 Olympics with Jim Thorpe. So they were uh, both indigenous people in, in the Olympics, the only two. Well, actually, no, his brother. I think his brother was along with him. Um, was Jim Thorpe from Hawaii as well? No, Jim Thorpe was part Indian. Okay. Um, and he was a, a decathlete. Got it. Um, and uh, so he was, Duke was actually, and Jim Thorpe were the first dark-skinned um, athletic stars um, in America. They pre- they preceded Jesse Owens by thirty years. Wow. Um, and it's interesting if you go back and read the original coverage. I've gone I've gone and read some of the old stories of the that were in the New York Times, and because you can find anything online these days, and it makes you wince because they're by our standards, all that coverage is just so racist. You know, the dark skin one wins. It's, you know, darky wins kind <laughs> of stuff. But you have to kind of calibrate it a little bit because that's just, nobody thought of it as racist at the time. 
But on his first trip across America, you know, he has said that people didn't know whether to be prejudiced against him because he was black or an Indian because they'd never seen anything like it. They just knew that he was dark and that he was lesser and, you know, he wasn't allowed to stay in the hotel, the same hotels and all that stuff. And would he talk about this? Yeah, he would some, but he never, you know, never in that sort of, you know, Muhammad Ali uh, um, way. Right, yeah, your story's making me kind of think about this and and I want to let you get to... um the way that you covered it in your article. Right. Um, because the point that I got across from that was that he really maintained that, you know, ambassador of Aloha um, character uh, publicly till the end amidst a lot of controversy that was happening in Hawaii through that time. Right. Yeah. And he was conspicuously mum about it his whole life. Yeah. Um, so when he, after he won the um, gold medal, when he came back, you know, he had this giant celebration when his boat pulled in, everybody in Oahu was there and um, he got, he, there's pictures of him with like, you know, 20 lays on and, um, and it didn't take the, the rich white overlords of Hawaii, the people who were really running the show, um, you know, Dole of Dole Pineapple, Sanford Dole, and um, the guy uh, whose name escapes me right now, who who started the Honolulu Advertiser, um, to realize that he was money in the bank for them, that because it was the beginning of the tourism industry there, um, so they uh, they wanted him to compete in the next Olympics. Um, and the rules back then, especially were so rigid about not being a professional, like you couldn't make money at the thing that you were, uh, in the Olympics for. So he couldn't give swim lessons. He couldn't, he couldn't compete for money. He couldn't be in the movie swimming, um, if he wanted to compete in the Olympics. Uh, so they actually gave him this kind of, um, do nothing job at city hall. So they could, they could keep him on the payroll, keep him in the public eye, and he continued to train and then be in the next Olympics. Cause right. And you wrote they got him a house. In, they got him a house. In and, and the house. Yeah. It was interesting about that. So the house that he ended up living in was actually paid for by two of the guys who were on the safety committee who had deposed the queen. Wow. Um, and he knew that. Like, um, and he accepted it. I mean, that's kind of one of the, the parts of his story that doesn't align with the um all the the happy news that you read about Duke. sure I mean, he, that said he was by all accounts always his whole life just the most gentle soul the the kindest guy like truly embodied the spirit of aloha in hawaii it lived it um like i've never read any anything from anyone about him snapping or being rude or he was just always kind of passive and and sweet and kind in fact, if you can, um, there's a uh, he appeared on that old show in the 50s called This Is Your Life. So this was in the 50s. This was 10 years before he died. He died in his 70s. So he was in his late 60s. And uh, he, that show, it's a half hour. You can find it really easy on YouTube. It's in two parts. Just Google Duke Hanamoku, This Is Your Life. And um, they that that's an ambush show where they 
they they bring him back and they, he thinks he's there to like shoot some commercial and all of a sudden the curtain parts and he's in front of a live audience and the and, and the cameras are rolling and it's fucking live on TV this is the 50s like game on <laughs> and uh and then they they trot out over the course of the half hour all these people from his past who um many of whom he hadn't talked to or seen in years and years and years including Johnny Weissmuller who was the the swimmer who went on to replace him as the great Olympic swimmer of the era ended up beating him in the, in the Olympics um but they they became fast friends Johnny Weissmuller famously became Tarzan in the movies okay um he had a movie career duke tried to have a movie career but they weren't letting dark-skinned people be movie stars back then so right we'll talk about that later sure um but anyway so as this in in this this episode of this is your life as these people come out all of his brothers and sisters he had a really tight family big beautiful family they come out and sing this hawaiian song and it's all it's just beautiful and, and this mc guy keeps trying to to um to interview him and he he's just so humble and you just fall in love with the guy because he's like you can tell he doesn't want to be there but he also doesn't want to disappoint anybody. Like he's kind of got this obligation. And then when he sees these people come out, his eyes just totally light up. Like he's genuinely in the moment, giving these people big hugs. Um, and the most touching point of that show is when these three or four dudes come out who he had saved single-handedly in, in Corona del Mar when a boat capsized during a giant south swell there before the jetties were put in. Um, this is, and he, he got a ton of press about this in the day. So in like, this was in 25. So this, this was like literally 30 years later, these guys walk on stage, hadn't talked to him since that day. Um, this boat capsized. No one could get out through the ways of the big South swell. Duke was on the beach with a couple of guys. He punched through the shore break three times, brought in eight people single-handedly Saved and five people died, but he saved eight people. We bring him in two on his board, three on his board. Wow. Um, and was so exhausted that he ended up walking down the beach and, uh, and, and up in the cliffs and falling asleep on the <laughs> sand. And then all the press came and tried to talk to him, and, and he was gone. And, and all the guys who got rescued never got to say thank you. And then, and the, but these, they tracked these dudes down, and they come out on the stage. It's a really, it's, it's a pretty powerful show. Um, but of course, at the end of it, the guy goes, okay, and Duke, here's your parting gifts. You get the Magnavox record player, the best of its kind, because it's a Magnavox, and, the, and it's just this cheesy, like, sales thing, which is just, to me, was kind of symbolic of, of his life, because people kind of use him to sell things. Wow. Did he end up competing in the next Olympics four he years did, later? and he won, he won gold again. Wow. Um, he won gold in, I think he won gold in the 50 and the 100, and then I think in the relay, too. I, I don't remember the exact... The, how many gold medals and he I think he would tried to go and the one of them got canceled because of World War um, World War I 1918 got canceled um, or I guess it would have been so it was 12 16 would have been 1920 got canceled um, and uh, that that hurt him because he he would have also probably won then and he ended up going back for one or two more. And the, I think his last medal was on like the polo team, water polo team, something like that. Right. Uh, he was pretty old. He, he loved to compete. He was really a competitive motherfucker, everybody said. Like always paddling, surfing, swimming. Right. Yeah. And um, you, know, you still see that 
today among the personas of athletes. Like they, they really decide who they want to be, what they want to stand for. And, and a lot of them just want to stand for being the best, being great athletes. Mm-hmm. And then you have some like Muhammad Ali who, you know, they're in their prime and they're, you know, you can tell it's just in their DNA to speak out about right. these kinds of issues. Right. Um, but I guess, you know, the question is looking back in retrospect, seeing what was happening in Hawaii at the time, you know, is when you have this kind of great audience, do you have a responsibility to be brutally honest about what's happening in the political environment? You know, yeah, it just depends on who you are. It sure does. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, in his case, I think what he decided to lean into was his love of Hawaii and his Hawaiianness and Hawaiian culture and and the rich history and the um, the all the kind of positive aspects that were still living. Right. Um, and uh, so he became willingly became sort of the ambassador. When people would come, when any celebrity would come to town, he was the, they trot him out to to meet them and. Take right. him out in a canoe or take him out surfing. Sure, and, and you know, uh, by being who he was, he was a, he was able to sit at certain tables that others certainly weren't. So um, it is possible, I think, for sure, to affect change from the inside. And it also speaks to um, this idea of you know what you're talking about is um, fighting for something good versus fighting against something bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently had a guy on my podcast named Nick Strong Svetich, who's the director Nick. of yeah. Save the Waves, and, and he was talking about these two models. Of like, either you can try and fight the coal plant that's being proposed, and a lot of times you'll lose, or you can, um, you know, what they do is they designate these world surfing reserves, sometimes even before there's a threat. They just say, hey, this is a sick spot, and we should all um, band together and, and, and protect it with legislation bef- preemptively. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, there are certainly different ways to, to go about it, but then go for it. I I think he was kind of further handcuffed a little bit by the fact that he was, um, he was living, his income was somewhat dependent on the people who he would have been trying to tear down. Right. Um, and, uh. As are, as are many athletes today with corporate sponsors who yes. don't want to talk about, exactly. you yeah. know, the uh, materials economy or, right. you know, all the fucked up shit that happens behind the scenes when they're making the celebrities, clothes. all kinds of people. Yeah, right. For sure. Um, and, and then he also, he married, uh, he had a, he had a strange marriage. He married in his fifties, he was 55 and he married a woman, I think who was, 30, um, for 40, I think she was 15 years younger. Uh, and she, she was like a dance instructor and, uh, kind of tracked him down. Like one of the, she said, one of the things that led her to Hawaii was when she was living in, I forget where on, on, in the mainland, saw a picture of him surfing. So do I have to go there? And then realized that she could, not until she got there, that, that he was, was kind of a small community. She could get to meet him. And, um, wasn't exactly a stalker, but she, she would tell that story. Like, uh, yeah, I moved here because of him. And then we probably, you know, I fell in love. He fell in love with me. <laughs> but she loved to hobnob with the, all the, the elites there. She would teach some of them how to, um, how to dance. And, um, 
I think in, in one of the biographies, the best of the biographies of him, the one by Dave Davis called Waterman, um, he talks about the fact that she turned him from a Democrat to a Republican and kind of uh, um, molded was one of the reasons why I think why, because it wasn't until really the, the 60s that people in Hawaii started to get pretty vocal in their um, opposition to what had happened before. Um, you know, to the overthrow of the queen. And that was when the sovereignty movement started to heat up, 60s and 70s. And and by that, well, he, well, he, he died in 68. Okay. So, um, uh, he kind of, I, I wonder if he had lived what he would have said about when the sovereignty movement started to get some press in the 70s. Right. Um, um, what drew you to him? Because you've read all of his biographies, you mm-hmm. seem keenly fascinated with with his life i i think because he well he, for one thing he's arguably the most influential surfer of all time and i'm a surf journalist you know I, when surfer did that's it's uh end of the century issue we put him on the cover said the i remember that one most influential surfer of all time yeah and and, and rightfully so you know he he was the he didn't he didn't exactly introduce surfing he wasn't the first person to surf in australia but he was the he was the spark that lit that flame you know he had a couple of big surfing exhibitions there um he kind of did the same thing on the east coast of america he did did it somewhat in in uh california although it was really george freeth who got brought to huntington to, to um put on surf displays but um you know and then he became kind of the 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 uh, the best face of the sport in many ways you know he he was one everybody looked up to in the 60s he had kind of a surf team and it was all up the the best young guys you know and they were all very clean cut and, right you know they would basically surround him like acolytes <laughs> right. um, but it was you know fred hemmings and greg Knoll, jeff hackman um i think was part of that and uh and interesting, those are some of the last people alive to know him when he was alive. Right. And you had a chance to interview Greg Knoll for the article that you did yeah. in Surfer's Journal. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Greg had told me a story many years ago um, when I first started you know, looking into Duke, because I knew that he had do him, and, and I've known Greg for, for quite a while from when I was editor of Surfer. And... Uh, Greg told me the story about one time they were at an event um, and it was something where Duke was getting an award with a lot of people and there was an MC on stage and they had promised Duke that he wouldn't have to get up to give a speech because he hated giving speeches. Um, and uh, But this guy calls him up anyway. Duke, come on up here, say a few words. And so Duke's at a table, and as he's pushing back his chair, he kind of leans into Greg Knoll and goes, fucking Howley, <laughs> and, and goes on up. And, and, and I just thought, well, that's the, like, that's the perfect ending for this story, because you know, those two words, it's like a, such a nice, succinct condemnation of all, the, all that they had gone through over the centuries. Um, but before the story ran, and I actually end the story with this, um, I showed it to... Um, Dave Parmenter, who had, you know, lived on, uh, in Makaha and, um, had written the piece for Duke when we had done the, um, 
called him the most influential surfer of the century. And uh, I don't I don't think Dave liked it. He didn't like the story that much because he because he he thought I I sort of. Uh, he didn't exactly say it, but it was more like, oh, I don't know why you had to take this tack, but I think he thinks I kind of demeaned Duke. But um, but the one thing he was adamant about was, hey, that fucking Hallie thing you got all wrong, because I've heard a lot of Hawaiians say that, and it's like, they say it like, oh, fucking Hallie. Like, like it's just, the th- it's a thing that they say when the Hallies are, are, are making them do something again, or they fucked up again, but it's it's not it's not said with like, seething inflection it's more just sort of resignation yeah and uh um and then and so and then i so i called greg back and said do you remember i wanted more details about that moment because i kind of wanted to i wanted to attenuate it and and air it out a little bit and um and uh he said he said no i don't remember i don't remember where it happened i mean he he remembers that he's told that story over the years, but he couldn't remember where it was and exactly what the guy said to make Duke say that. But he said, but here's the thing, you know, when he said it to me, it was like, it was more like he was just saying to me, like, you're, you're, you're a brada, you know, like I can talk to you. And, you know, Greg Knoll had said, spent years with, uh, with Buffalo Kailana. Like he's, he's part Hawaiian as far as the, the Buffs people are concerned, you know, all the Kailanas love him. And, um, and I realized that, that Parmenter was right, that um, actually what Duke was doing in that moment was not grousing about what Howleys had done to his people. He was kind of reaching out to this young Howley. The way that I read it was that it, I really liked that you ended the story like that because I felt like it humanized him and it showed that he didn't have his head in the sand throughout all those years that he was Mm -hmm. aware of what was going on. We all make choices and we're, um, you know, we all lead these different lives and some of us are, um, you know, handcuffed in moments, you know, where we make decisions as as he did to be able to sit at these certain tables, to be able to focus on the positive side of Hawaiian culture that he wanted to spread and did more effectively than anyone. Um, And he probably was very aware that if he became an outspoken activist around these issues, he might lose that seat at a table. This is also around the time when you didn't have podcasts. You you couldn't say fuck on air. You had, you had white people telling your story for you. Right. right? Right. So you can bet that they would have twisted his story very quickly and deplatformed him. That's right. Right. And there's also this, like, he couldn't have started a YouTube channel right. and started right. ranting about right. Hawaiian he issues, right? I don't think he had a lot of Instagram followers. No, not at the time. Not at the time. He would now, though. Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's a Duke Instagram out there. Um, but no, no that's I. That's a really good point. I, 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 I felt that. In those terms. Yeah, yeah. No, I felt that it really humanized him. And I think that. What I get to when when I I have a lot to say about this whole story, and um, again I really enjoyed your piece, which is that I think that like when I hear fucking Howleys, it's this it's a statement about the lack of awareness that Howleys have. I think that um, Hawaiian culture has this very um, this acknowledgement of this intrinsic value of nature that white people tend not to. Um, The current economic system that we live in values the free market, and it values supply and demand, and it values resources as products. But 
um, it doesn't value this kind of intrinsic value. And, and if the market provides for it, you know, like maybe Hawaii should just be turned into a whole paved parking lot because we can make more money that way. And I think that that statement, fucking Howley's, is pointing at that lack of perspective. Um, that's at least what I get mm-hmm. out of it. And I, and I think that that's what, you know, th- th- the perspective that Hawaiians have held for so long is what attracts humans to it. Um, it's this acknowledgement that we are part of a larger system. Um, and, you know, the, I, people know that inherently. There's some kind of inherent truth that, that right now we're not valuing nature correctly. And that's why, you know, people land on Hawaii and their shoulders just kind of drop a little bit. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to take my shoes off and I can just exhale a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I I didn't feel that it was, it was at all um, painting him in a bad light. But I also think, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, was is just, yeah, the, the role that athletes play today you know as we now ha- are in a a system where or we're just in a, me- a time of media where people can say exactly what they mean especially on mm-hmm. podcasts you know where you really get um the most honest version of of right. that person yeah i mean anytime you are your income depends on your celebrity which is really the case with most athletes um uh, that's a delicate dance because um, a most athletes aren't that well versed in in politics. They have they have opinions, but that's they don't sound what they spend their time doing. You know, they're not writing policy papers. They're practicing their jump shot or their cutbacks or their five forties. Um, and uh, it, so there's that like. Don't don't go with the public with with your opinion unless you really got something to say for one thing, but then also you know they risk alienating forty five percent of their audience because we're, right now particularly we're so polarized you know and it's um, the people who love Trump don't want to hear shit about him and it's it, and especially you know in social media you can you can turn all of your feeds into just a, a Fox News if you want. Um, so I think a lot of people kind of conspicuously steer clear of a lot of that stuff um, because they just, that's not the forum for it. That's not what people are for. Right. I mean, that, that's not what people come to to their, into their world for. Right. They want to see you the know. 540. They want to see the 540 or they want to see, you know, they want to see you do something funny or, um, you know, they want to see who you're hanging out with. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's, those are all... Um, very valid points in that, yeah, you don't want to be really opinionated about something if you don't have anything to say. Right. Um, and there, there's a reason why journalists are journalists because they research the shit and they lay it out in a, an organized way and they, um, have resources to back it up. Um, and I also, you know, I always wonder, about just persuasion in general. Like, what does it take to actually change someone's opinion 
on something like do, will will an instagram post do it because right. a lot of times it just makes people dig their heels even further in the sand right. on either right. side of the fence and as and as you said it just alienates 45 percent of your audience so I, I think that there can be a lot of uh a lot of negative that can come from speaking out but i also i mean I, i'm in a, a bit of a unique position mm-hmm. because like like the only thing that ever really made my surf career was was that I was spoken out like I was never good enough to just rely on <laughs> right. my surfing right so like cause I did this this documentary series where yeah. I would cover these coastal issues and then I lined with a company like Patagonia that right. that wanted to back that kind of thing up right. um so in a way I have an I've always had an almost opposite incentive mm-hmm. to try and know what I'm talking about as best I can right. and then deliver it in an right. entertaining way. Um, but so, yeah, I, I would say that I'm just in a, in a unique space where I, I, I in, in a way I want surfers to, to speak out more because I see just how fucked up shit is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we are one of the few, um, groups that care about this, thin seam between society and the wild um while on another on the other hand you know you don't want someone to start <laughs> screaming about something that they don't really know what they're talking about well that's one of the dangers too is i think that if you people who who aren't that well informed but are passionate and who have a megaphone um can actually damage the cause because they'll they'll seize some conspiracy theory or they'll they'll just start talking stupid shit about a good cause, but they aren't really that informed. And, and the people on the other side who are informed can just make them look like naive idiots. Um, right. So uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be allowed to speak your mind. I mean, the, the, the sad thing to me is that nowadays, if you speak your mind, you can just get a shit ton of grief for it um, just for speaking your mind. Right, you know, and not even pretending to know. Just say, my my brother has a, a giant Instagram, Twitter following, um, and uh, uh, he, I remember, got asked when the uh, Affordable Care Act was um, was first uh, instituted, and they needed people to sign up for it to succeed. Um, he, someone on the Obama administration, asked him to to. Um, to tweet about it, and he did, and the the response to that, the haters, who you know thought thought it was socialized medicine and thought Obama was the devil, and you know like my like Tony, but they was like, oh man, I used to like you, right? Like, just for just for telling people to sign up for ACA, so like. Yeah, you can, it, it's a it's a tightrope. I'm sure, and I'm sure from your perspective, you've had a chance to see the tightrope that your brothers walked for you know 20 plus years now to try and maintain i would just imagine that on his level too it's it's very difficult to like i don't know how, how do i put this i i don't know him but i he seems like a pretty grounded person and he seems like he's worked to keep that absolutely yeah yeah i mean very consciously, you know, it, 
it's hard to get him to do stuff sometimes because he says, no, sorry, I'm taking my kids to school or I'm, that's, that's a week I'm spending with my kids. It, you know, it's all about his kids. Right. Um, and he, he travels a lot for his various gigs, but, um, he definitely, uh, yeah, he's just, he's just a normal guy. Right. That's great. Um, I wanted to, uh, dig in a little bit to, uh, to surf journalism as, uh, I'm, I'm very interested in this. And, um, are you still teaching, uh, writing at Stanford? No, no, no. So you're just working on the, on the Stanford magazine. Yeah, That's the main yeah, thing. Yeah. I taught, I taught an environmental journalism class there for one quarter. Right. Um, right. And then that led to the job at the magazine. At the magazine. They didn't invite me back to teach. Let's just say that. Well, really? Why? I, I'm, they, they say it was because I became an employee. Right. And, but, um, uh, I've, I've never asked the guy who hired me, who I, I'm still friends with, and and uh, is a terrific guy, but um, uh, yeah, I just I didn't get invited back. Right, right. Um, let's go. Th- let's actually go this way with it. I was, I was just going to ask you about journalism, but given your background in um, environmental issues. And given that we've talked about this this idea of valuing nature, because this is something that I kind of grapple with quite a bit, and and I think that it's really easy to to villainize people who work for corporations or villainize people who you know the, the white people who came to Hawaii and um, exploited it. Um, but I'm kind of I am becoming more and more uh, of the mindset that that the corporation is kind of larger than the sum of its counterparts and that you as a person, you get fed into this system that you really don't have much of a choice over because corporations have this fiduciary responsibility to make as much money as possible for their shareholders every single quarter. Um, And they will do everything they can to externalize these costs onto the public. Um, and a lot of what environmentalists talk about and, and rightly so are angry about are these externalities that are burdened on the public. Um, and I wanted to get your perspective on that, given the amount of time that you've spent in this world. This is not to do with surf journalism. Then. Not this surf journalism. Like just no, I just took a, I, you mentioned environmental stuff and I'm like, I want to, let's go here. Right now. <laughs> um, There was a question there. There was a, no. I mean, it's a conversation. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, I, I would say that the the question is, um, how are we going to value that more correctly? Um. <laughs> well, so you start with companies like Patagonia, sure, um, who uh, who make a decision to. Uh, um, not to just keep growing and growing and growing right. as Yvonne did so many right. years ago. So we're going to stay at this, this level and, uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to not do any evil if we can help it. Right. Um, and then, uh, we're going to help other companies try to learn how to do what we're doing. Um, and, uh, and they're going to hire athletes like you who, who actually do not just walk the walk, but can talk the talk you and Jerry and you know that's it's an incredible team the Malloys um, so it can be done 
but but you're right in that the, the system, the the free market system in general, is designed to to rape and pillage. I mean, there's there's without government control, the, there's no um, nothing's gonna 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 pull them back. You know, they will they will scour every fish out of the sea and they'll chop down every tree um, and they'll pull every last oil out of the ground. Um, the idea that market forces are going to somehow uh, correct and save the planet, that's just, that's just not going to happen. Um, and uh, there has to be, I think only the most kind of purest libertarian would suggest that you, that you can go without any kind of government intervention. Um, and it's this pendulum, especially the United States, has just swung so far the other way where, you know, they not only, um, you know, with uh, the campaign finance laws, they're not only, they not only own all the politicians, um, you know, they're writing the laws. Right. The the cutting and pasting that goes on in the writing of bills from, you know, from lobbyists that, because they know the policy, they know how the policy works, uh, and so often they've come out of government or that's going, they're going the other way. Yeah, there's the revolving door. Yeah, I was mentioning to you before uh, this guy Lawrence Lessig, who's I'm, who I'm a right. big fan of, who does a lot of work on um, on campaign finance reform. He talks about how you know, the congressmen and the lobbyists use the same gym on right. Capitol Hill, right? Um, and it's just that uh, that incestuous at that point. There's a there's a woman at at the Stanford Business School named Anat Admadi who started a um, an in, an initiative there called Corporations and Society the Corporations and Society Initiative, um, and she's she's always bringing in people to talk about that about how um, corporations are running amok and we need much more government regulation. She, she she came out of the finance world. She's an expert in 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 banking. She's she's um, testified in front of Congress a bunch about the Dodd-Frank Act and that kind of stuff. Right. You know, believes that, that, that banks are over-leveraged already and we're, we're on the verge of another collapse because of that, because the, the, they're, they're writing, the banks are writing the rules. Right. Um, uh, but she's had some really interesting people come through. She had John Kerry Rue, the guy who wrote the book about Theranos. Um, oh, right, yeah. They were a, a, a nominee for the Motherfucker Awards. Yes. Yeah. Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth. Um there's a piece of work. And uh, uh, then she, he also had, she's had, um, uh, oh, the guy who, who did the deep dive into, um, fuck, I can't remember his name. Um, she's, had, she's had a guy who, who knows all about the lobbyists. That's what, that's what made me think of it. Right. Um, uh, people like um, Naomi Klein. Yeah, she's great. I, I'd love to get her on the podcast. Yeah, yeah it's it's an incentives issue. You, you know, should, more you should actually think about talking to a knot because she's she's really she she knows the stuff inside and out, and she's really got a thirty thousand foot view in it because she's seeing it from all all angles. Right. Yeah, I would yeah. love to. Yeah, this guy Lawrence Lessig, he talks about how politicians now are spending thirty to seventy percent of their time in office actively fundraising. Yeah. And they're fundraising from this very small percentage of people. So they right. develop this kind of sixth sense, uh, as he calls it, for uh, what they're going to want, what what kind of laws they're going to want to get passed. And then rather than working for um, the people, they're working for this very small percentage, um, trying to push through legislation. Um, 
And I, I do think that a huge amount of it comes down to incentives. It's not about whether or not good, people are good or people are bad. It's just about setting up a system where the not so smart, not so caring person can make a good decision more easily. And that's one thing that I've I've kind of shifted in my own thinking over the last few years. As I was doing the Surfing for Change series, a lot of it was focused on individual action. It's like bring your own bottle, and you know we can help right. change the world. Which yeah, you should for the I think the personal uh, for for the cultural shift and just for personal accountability. But I think that on a mass scale, if we're actually going to turn the tide, it needs to come down more towards corporate accountability. Which athletes can can play a big part in, you know, because they're the ones that that have seats at those tables. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe they just shut up and surf. I mean, yeah, I, you know, it's funny uh, because there, there's a question about um, the whole thing with Colin Kaepernick and, and Nike. Right. Um, uh, you know, they they the Nike commercial. The Nike commercial, right. where they they embraced him, you know. So, and the question behind that is, how much of that was them really believing it, and how much of them was seeing that that they were gonna it was gonna help grow their audience? Um, you hope it's the former, right? Um, so that that stuff can sometimes feel exploitive, but it, you know what, what do they say? There's no such thing as an unmixed motive, right? This is a little bit of both, right? Yeah, well, there's the, and then sometimes corporations can really um, get, uh, you know, they can step in crap, like the Pepsi commercial that w- about uh, Martin Luther King, yeah. and you know, there's the there's the riot police, and there's the the young black woman, she she uh, walks up, and then instead of the flower, it's a Pepsi can, and it's like ba da ba ba, or I guess that'd be McDonald's, but you know, and they they and then uh, I think it was Martin Luther King's daughter tweeted, you know, if only my father would have known the power of Pepsi. <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, I like what you said about the unmixed motive. Um, I think that, uh, you know, as, as a writer, when you're looking at a story, are you thinking a lot about that? This, um, you know, where the motivations are coming from and, and trying to expand upon it in a way that can be, um, more honest like what are what are some things that you're thinking about as you're going in for a story um, well that's a good question the so the I, I think what I'm looking for it, it it varies of course if it's fiction or, or nonfiction um, but in both cases the the, the fundamental thing that I, I learned when I got to work on that the television show John from Cincinnati by spending some time with the the, the executive producer David Milch was uh, watching him write scenes, and and this is fundamental to all screenwriting. But um, you know that that character is revealed through action. So you you can't tell, especially in screenwriting, you can't tell an audience that someone is funny and smart. You have to show them being funny and smart, um, and that's that's true with nonfiction as well. So if if I'm out trying to report it a really in-depth nonfiction piece as, as opposed to something I'm just doing over the phone where I got to get it out the door. Um, uh, spending time with somebody and setting a scene and watching them be themselves and then um, describing them in action where you're sort of just a fly on the wall um, and making people feel like they're in the room with them and watching them move around and talk and respond to other people and how their emotions 
rise and fall and whatever it is so that you're, um, you're just immersing them in the moment almost as if it's fiction. That's the best way I think that the people come along for the ride. Um, so in some ways, the, st- the story to me, you'll always find a story. The story to me is, is, uh, is it, it's fun. You'll find it. But I, I, I just like the part of being there and trying to, to observe and, and then go back and piece that together in a way that, that um, feels more like fiction than nonfiction. Right. How do you... Not that you're making shit up. Sure. No, yeah. but you're, you're, how do you uh, observe? Like, will you take me into a situation and do, are you a writer or do you just mm-hmm. keep it all in your head until after the fact? What does that actually look yeah, like? Yeah, take notes. Just take notes. Okay. Um, you know, we talked about this a, l- a little bit on last time I was here where, uh, you know, if, if you're out doing, like doing a surf trip or something, you're going to write about that or whatever you're writing about, you know, when, when you're, when you're, out as a reporter you kind of have to be a reporter the whole time like because you'll miss you'll miss stuff and and if someone says something great and you don't write it down you're almost certainly going to forget it um right so i just get to the point where people are just used to seeing me write shit down the whole time you know or they kind of forget that the camera's on right yeah, yeah. Well, that's the nice thing also about not having a camera is that right. it's like the worst interviews you can ever get are when the ones where there's a really big camera in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, so anything that you can do to although although a good documentarian will make people forget about the camera, which actually brings me something I'd love to talk about, which sure. is the the best documentary of the year this year, uh, Minding the Gap. Have you seen that? The, I have not. The, Tell me about it. Um, it's about. Uh, three young skateboarders is kind of a coming of age story but it's I've heard about it but it's a, right 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 it's a um, it's a documentary it's not a fiction film um, but it's by this kid named Bing I can never I never remember his last name um, but he's from Chicago and he started he started turning the camera on around his friends when he was like 15 16 so he's got all this old footage of them skating and goofing around and and then he just started really kind of documenting their lives as they became from becoming teenagers to young men and they all three of them it's him and an african-american guy so he's vietnamese an african-american guy and a white guy very different backgrounds as you can imagine but they came together through skating all three abused by their fathers um and all three just trying to figure out how to become men um in very different ways and it's just it's the most powerful film partly because there are these long scenes where you the people he in the room have forgotten the camera have just have have learned to live with the camera and so he's getting these really intimate scenes that um you don't get when you got lights and right and you're yeah. interviewing them and asking yeah. them questions yeah. nice yeah it's great it's it's really good it was nominated for academy award and as much as i loved free solo which won I thought this was a this was, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free Solo had the the singular pursuit that is just so, yeah. um, you know, it just str- strikes you in your loins when you see some of those photos, and you know, it's it's really hard to beat that. Yeah, um, yeah. It seems like uh, I, I was a skater growing up, and I have a lot of friends that uh, that ended up going pro and kind of sticking with it. It's a, it's a really interesting. Uh, community and the way that it's it's similar to surfers in a sense but it's in a way a lot more community driven because you can be genuinely stoked for your friend when they're 
on the ramp because there's not this supply and demand issue. No, whereas, that's exactly right. You know, whereas yeah. surfers is like the whole goal is to get away from other people. Right. Skating, right. if there's 20 people on a ramp, it's the best session, you right. know, of the week. Right. Um, so there's this genuine support. Whereas if you see a surfer on the way on a wave, like if he's outside, I'm like, fall, 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 fall. You know, because exactly. I want to get out of the way. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if you're out there with three guys and four more paddle out, Right, you're bummed because it means fewer ways for you. Exactly. Yeah. So as a ramp, it's really not very rare that there are too many skaters in a park. Right. But a but an an aspect that's similar is that a lot of surfers and a lot of skaters, uh, you know, come from broken homes and they're out there to escape that and find community in a place that's just an environment that's nothing like their yeah. home life. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I I think you're right. I think the the culture at skate parks is much more of a of a family. And much more a place where you can go and kind of find uh, escape right. from th- with, with other people who are going to support you no matter what you do. Right. The other thing I love about skate parks is that um, when guys, uh, when, when good skaters see a young skater like trying to drop in for the first time, that that whole thing. So t- Tony just put a thing up about his daughter dropping in for the first time, his ninth okay. daughter, and um, it blew up on Twitter, like ridiculous number of responses and a whole bunch of people posting shots of their kids dropping in for the first time. And, and then people posting shots of kids dropping in with like crowds around. Right. You know, that's what I love about skating is that it, um, kind of no matter what level you're at there, someone's going to applaud you. Yes. As you get to the next level. Yes. That's um, it. It's n- it's not like surfing where it's like you eat only the best guys are the ones that are celebrated. No right. one's going to be like, woohoo, you dropped in on that wave, right. man. That that's was right. nice it's work. Thing, no one's watching. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because you're, you're out there alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and it's also, you know, if you miss a skateboard trick, there's a good chance you're going to get hurt. So, right. so, so you're putting yourself at risk, especially as, as things get gnarlier. Yes. You know, and, and when you finally do stick it, like so many skate tricks, you can try and then halfway through sort of realize, oh, I don't have this and run out of it or roll out of it. Right. Or, you know, kind of be light footed about it. But, but once you decide to stick it and you're going to put your weight on it. Yes. Then you're committed. Yeah. And you might go down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's the, the level of commitment, the level of just, um, zeroing in focus that happens skating and visualizing it and getting to try it again and again and again. It was something that I, I really missed when I, because I snapped my arm three times skating and then I started focusing more on surfing and it was just like, uh, it was, and I can still do it. And, um, I got pretty good. Um, I mean, not compared to like your brother, your brother's standard or anything like that, but like, you know, we had a ramp growing up in the backyard and I found that one thing I really missed was just that aspect of, the community supporting you to stick it mm-hmm. and then you do it and, and it you know, your hip is swollen because you tried and fell 20 times beforehand, but it's like, there's this energy that's pulsing behind you rather than if you're out surfing and you're, tr- you're trying to learn air reverse, you're the only one who cares that you're trying that. Right. Um, and you do it and, and maybe no one sees. Yeah. Or maybe your video guy sees. Yeah. Maybe your <laughs> video guy sees. But, but yeah, also, you know, one thing that's funny about skating is that you know, there could be the best guy at the park. And if he's doing the same run over and over again, no one's going to celebrate that. That's right. But if someone is really afraid about dropping in and then they finally do it, the whole park is going to erupt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's really true. The other thing about skating that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention, I think, is that 
it, um, it teaches you that success requires a lot of failure. Um, right. Because, it, you know, learn, learning to do a kickflip, how, how, how many times do you not make that before you land it? Right. Hundreds, I would imagine. Yeah. Like, I, I never learned to kickflip, so. Um, uh, and, and then, and then th- that, that's just, that's true through the whole progression of the sport everything you do they, they're hard to learn right um and uh i i think about this a lot because i'm on the board of directors of my brother's foundation which raises money to build skate parks in low-income areas and we're always trying to you know we, we convince people to give us money and that's part of it is it, all the stuff we've been talking about how there's there's this real strong sense of community it's really good for 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 young people to learn uh about perseverance um and uh, it's athletic, you know. There's just there's all the reasons in the world to build a skate park. Yeah, I, I just drove by the, the San, Santa Cruz skate park. Yeah, the Mike Fox here. park. Mike Fox park. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was packed. It was packed. I bet. I bet that's the most used recreational facility that the city has put up. Yeah. More than any basketball court, little little league fields. They're good for four or five months. You know, when people are playing, but they sit empty most of the year. Well, an interesting point that you just brought up is that most recreational parks have this max capacity that skate parks rarely hit. Right. It's, it's, I mean, kind of sucks going to a skate park when no one's there because you don't have anyone to motivate you. Yeah. And sure, yeah, it can get too crowded where you're waiting 10 minutes between a run, but skating tires you out also really quickly. So it's yeah. nice to have other people there just so that you can take a breather. Yeah, that's a really good point thing that you miss though with skating is that you have a lot of people drop drop out of the community because it's a young person's sport and you're landing on concrete yeah instead of water yeah whereas you know we were talking on the way over here after you surfed about how surfing is this kind of lifelong pursuit and you mm-hmm. you are always shifting your relationship to it mm-hmm. and as long as you persevere you can maintain a relatively healthy relationship to it and the the risk is fairly low that you're gonna yeah. ruin yourself yeah whereas if you stick with skateboarding for your whole life the risk is relatively high that you're going to destroy yourself in one way or another <laughs> or at least be out for a few months yes yeah a year a yeah. few months every single year yeah, exactly <laughs> but um, it's, there's also this but, par- know, there's a, there's an increasing contingent of old guys who are who are sticking with it well a lot of um, ramp guys a lot of ramp guys especially yeah. the big bull guys and yeah. the ramp guys but um a lot of guys come back to it when their kids start skating. Right. Which happened in surfing, actually. In the when I was at Surfer, uh, that one, that's one thing that caused the longboard resurgence in the toward the end of the nineties. Um, was that these for the first time in surf history, guys were having kids who wanted to surf, and they'd say, "Well, you know, I used to surf." But, oh, sorry, and they'd say, "I used to surf." Right. And uh, um, but then. Because everyone went so short with their boards, if if you fell out of it, then you you know you try to get back on your old shortboard, you weren't going to be able to, to ride a wave. Right. Um, but then they started taking their kids out, and they'd go to the surf shop and pull out their credit card, which was also a new thing for surfing to have guys who could afford surfboards. And um, and then they were buying buying longboards, and um, that was that was one of the big factors that this kind of first time there was this multi generational thing dads taking their kids surfing hmm. and now of course it's 
you know, it's a thing. It's it's normal. Yeah, but, it's normal. But yeah, that, that that's an interesting point that it does. Um, uh, it comes back around. But you know, so my my brother just dropped a, a, a thing called Fifty Tricks at Fifty, um, a video where he he went and he did fifty tricks that he had invented, um, in in about a two week period. Um, and uh, and then com- compressed into this like four or five minute video. Played it, um, ran it to uh, Clamp Down by The Clash. It's it pretty killer. But the comments on that were from all these guys his age or, or in their 30s and 40s saying, yeah, I'm st- you know, you inspire me. I'm going to get back on my board. I'm still, if you can do that at 50, I can do it at 35. Right, yeah. And I think there's, there's I, when, I, when I read the comments under his fees anyway, I get the feeling that there's this kind of growing movement of old guys kind of coming back to it. Right. Well, dude, thanks so much for coming and talking about Duke and uh, surfing and skating. We meander around as we do, but uh, I, I really enjoy talking with you. And me too. Uh, I was thanks. I was uh, texting Evan Slater right before uh, we came in, and I, I texted him that photo of us, and he said, "Best podcast guest yet." <laughs> so a, Has he been on it yet? Um, he hasn't. No, I really want to get Evan oh. on, but um, he listens, and he's uh, a big fan of you. No. Um, yeah, he has nothing but but really great I things love, to say. Well, Evan was was I think maybe the best editor that uh, the Surf magazines ever had. He didn't he didn't wasn't that that long, but when his his tenure, especially at Surfing magazine, he replaced me at Surfer and then left to join me at at Surfline for a while, but then went back to Surfing, and that that period when he was at Surfing and he brought Taylor Paul in and. They were doing just just like cover to cover. It was just some of the best surf magazines ever huh. made. How so? Yeah. Anything you can think of? Just his attention to detail, and they would plan things out, and they would they would do okay. We're going to do a theme issue, and then they would just do a dozen stories around that. They were all really smart. The design was good. Um, you know, he was he was a super hard worker. He people wanted to work hard for him, um, and. Uh, yeah, there's there was a period there about six months to a year when they were just completely on their game and killing it. It's a pains me to say because I was a surfer guy surfing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's the um, the battle continues. Yeah. Continued. Uh, the surfer <laughs> ended up winning, but. So, um, you told me when you hurt your arm that that was one of the one of the scariest moments you've had, uh, in that period. Yeah. Did, did you ever? What's your scariest moment? actually surfing like have you ever have you ever surfed chopu no never surfed chopu um scariest moment i've ever had surfing um yeah haven't hasn't been out at mavericks um i think that that area i mean there's certainly been some some very big waves out there but it's such a contained situation there's so many people there's just so many eyes watching um and the difference between that and feeling like you're really all alone at some of these beach breaks mm-hmm. where you know you get swept down the beach and there's a, a 15 foot wave that's on your head and you realize you're like, okay, if, if I'm not coming up here, like no one's going to grab me. I mean, right. not that that's necessarily like the mindset that you want to take out at, at a wave like Mavericks or something right. like that, but there's just so much more, so many more people around. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I, I've had some, some pretty freaky moments down in, places like Puerto Escondido where, oh, yeah. you know, you, you make it to the beach finally and you're like, whoo, yeah, that was, you know, you're kind of on the edge of, um, of just being just really exhausted. Um, 
but yeah i mean i it's the thing that was so unique i would would say about uh this experience kiteboarding was that I'm, i'm a full kook i don't know how to kiteboard and i didn't know what was happening when i got thrown through the air so when you fall in a wave you can kind of feel it coming right you know even if you just go over the falls and it's, it feels it was a surprise it's a it's not a new feeling like what the ocean is doing to you right but you know picture yourself falling on a wave and then all of a sudden like a pterodactyl comes down and grabs you and you're just like whoa what <laughs> is happening here like i did not see that coming um i should have but you know i was uh, you're obviously uh in a sport where you're using the wind but I don't know how to use the wind. Um, so the surprise of it was what right. caught me off guard. Right. Um, which is, it's an interesting way to notice fear and that it's not actually what's happening to you. It's your expectation of what's, mm-hmm. what you think is going to happen. Right. You know, what catches you off guard is right. ultimately what's scary. Um, and training for surfing, um, heavier waves ultimately is about kind of simulating these situations before right. they happen so that then when you're down underwater, you can just be like, okay, well now I'm down underwater, but here I am. It's going to be temporary. And I've done this in a pool, done this thousand times, in a, pool this a bunch. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. but it's also interesting to notice how that training can, can kind of leave you. Like if you get sloppy about it and you're not doing pool training, that kind of thing, like, all of a sudden, ten seconds starts to feel like a, a much longer time. Oh, for sure. Like right now, I I wouldn't. Three seconds will scare me underwater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how quickly you lose it. I'm like, man, with this injury, I, I went um, just body surfing yesterday. It was the first time I'd gone back out in the ocean in a long time, and just getting pounded like a couple little three foot waves is like, wow. It's 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 really wild how quickly your mojo goes when mm-hmm. you're not staying at it. So you got to stay at it. Yeah. My friend Kevin Judice, who was on your show, yeah, he was great. Back. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we talk about this a lot because we we went out to um, Chopu one time when there was nobody out, and you know, going into it, we I just thought this is going to be the scariest thing I've ever experienced. It was like it was like head high. It wasn't that big, and it turned out not to be that scary, you know, because it was. Um, you know, we weren't exactly charging it, um, but it was, uh, um, I, I just remember thinking, like going in, as you talked about, I was anticipating being really, really scared. Right. So when it was all over, I just was like, oh, that was nothing. Yeah. Like, nothing happened. Yeah. Well, it's your mind telling you, it's just the power of the mind, man. I, mean, I, I got uh, acupuncture today for my arm and... I'm fairly new to acupuncture, but just expecting the needle to go in and tensing up beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, oh, ow, that hurt. But then I'm thinking like, that didn't actually hurt. Like that felt like a little pinch, but it was just my mind telling me that it was going to hurt. So um, I would say that, yeah, the, the best thing that's happened for me since this injury has been the amount that I've focused on meditation and um, this real... Uh, shift in concentrating on pain and being able because doing rehab it really does hurt and and to mm-hmm. force myself to really bore into what that raw sensation feels like does feel like it, it, it's I can notice a lot of spiritual growth happening wow. as a result of not trying to just avoid the situation or think about something that's happening in the future or something that happened in the past mm-hmm. and just and be here 
in this moment without the um, sensory distraction that something like an action sport gives us. And, um, you know, I, I think that for a, for a lot of people that are in, into surfing and skating, what they'll tell you is that one of the reasons they love it so much is because of this intense feeling of presence, of just concentrating. We were talking about it earlier, like, I've tried that I need, I want to land a 360 air on a ramp, and I've tried it 50 times, and I need to pull it. And you're not thinking about anything in the past or the future, but, um, and I think that what they lose when they don't do it is that presence is like, then you're, you're just caught in regular life and anxiety. And I would say that what I'm trying to do now as I can't do anything that's extreme is to try and cultivate presence without an external sensory that's going to force me to go there. Well, you should maybe break your arm more often. That's yeah. Well, I've, Hey, I've broken, this is my fourth broken arm. So that's really all I'm trying to do is just maintain presence in the most painful way possible. You should be totally enlightened by now. Yeah. 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 That's, that's it. All right. uh, right. Let's go get a beer. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That's our show. I'm going to play out a song called This Cat's Got Time by Nate Maingard. I will link to his band page in the show notes below. If you are a musician, send me some tunes. I need more music. Uh, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can send uh, the voice memos. Record it on your phone. 30 seconds of audio more or less just let me know who you are and what it looks like where you are in this moment right now and any uh words of wisdom that you want to say to this audience um or if you have something that's like you know good for the planet like hey i have a beach cleanup in a couple weeks you know come join us uh you know i like bringing people together however i can so you can email that to info at kyle.surf Uh, Don't forget about the box of goodies. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to get it. And with that, hope you enjoy this song called This Cat's Got Time by Nate Maingard. Fascination for material medication by our education. Well, it's a fucked up situation. Yes, it's an awkward situation. But let's not argue pedantics about who is gonna win. Cause I'm not entering your races. So I don't think that's relevant And all I need is a patch of sunlight From which to watch the world run by You tell me life it is a rat race Well I'm the rat so I've got time Yes I'm the rat so I've got time This cat's got time This cat's got time
flickering candlelight It's all that holds at bay the night And it keeps away the beast But why'd you keep away the beast? Why are you afraid of the beast? And let's not argue pedantics About who is gonna win I'm not entering your races So I don't think that's relevant And all I need's a patch of sunlight From which to watch the world run by You tell me life, it is a rat race Well, I'm the rat, so I've got time Yes, I'm the rat, so I've got time This cat's got time cat's got time This cat's got time This cat's got time